0: Welcome to On the Same Page, the Fuller's Bookshop podcast. My name's Damon Young.
1: And I'm Ruth Corbell.
0: Today we're speaking to Meg Mundell, an Australian writer and academic. She's the author of two novels, Black Glass and The Trespassers, and a short story collection, Things I Did for Money. Meg is also a researcher with an interest in place and ethics. She edited a collection on homelessness titled We Are Here, Stories of Home, Place and Belonging. Born in New Zealand, Meg now lives in Melbourne with her partner and young son. Today we'll be talking to Meg about her second novel, The Trespassers.
1: Welcome Meg. Uh, Now there's a question we always start our groups with and today you're getting that question.
2: What sort of book is this? What sort of book is yeah. it? Um, I think it's a book with a lot of love in it, a lot of fear in it. Uh, I hope it's a bit of a page turner. It's got allegorical elements. It's got literary elements, a bit of a genre mashup. Hopefully, a really strong story.
0: So, would you? Because sort of, sometimes it was a bit like reading a thriller—not a typical thriller—but there was all the, there was always the question of what is the danger and and who is behind it.
2: Yeah, I, d- I did try to sort of write a literary thriller. I, I wrote various descriptions on bits of paper and stuck them around my desk to remind me what I was attempting to do. <laughs> uh, Yeah, it's not a conventional thriller, but I I wanted that undercurrent of strong emotion and threat uh, running through it and threat from several directions uh, so that my characters were, I guess, put on the spot uh, in a kind of crucible situation and that's where you really, characters are tested. Um, So I tried to keep that that thriller element, the suspense and the threat running through the book. Um,
0: And it's also, I suppose, part of a, an emerging um, genre of ecological novels or, you know, sort of environmental place novels, often where there's been some catastrophe.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that uh, hasn't... Uh, the other elements of the book Of sometimes, for many readers, tended to crowd that out, but it, the book is also informed by a, a deep uh, love and fascination and also terror of the ocean uh, as a a place and what's happening to our oceans in the world at the moment. So I wanted to bring that into consciousness because it's a world that I find very fascinating um, and uh, we often forget what's happening out there because we don't see it every day. So I wanted to bring that closer to people's consciousness.
0: Mm. Okay. Okay. The, the novel begins with a poem from Carol Ann Duffy, um, Who Loves You. Don't lie down on the sands where the hole in the sky is. Too many people being gnawed to shreds. Send me your voice however it comes across oceans. Safely, safely, safe home. Carol Ann Duffy, Who Loves You? Uh, was that a, a guiding image or a later discovery or...?
2: How did, how did that work in your writing? I, I found that poem, uh, I really, I, I love poetry. I'm not very good at writing it myself, so I've um, stolen from the talents of um, greater poets than I. But she's a Scottish poet, so that fit uh, beautifully with um, one of the main characters, Billy, who's a Scotswoman. And as soon as I read the poem, I, I was looking Scott's poets, looking for something that I could I could use as an inspiration. Partway through, maybe like three quarters of the way through, um, <clears throat> and I found that poem and it immediately rang, rang um, a bell. It chimed for me, um, the idea of being far away across an ocean, terrible things happening. Um, Please deliver, you know, please come home to me. Um, I'm thinking of you. That separation of people um, and the the bonds of love across distance uh, in a time of fear.
0: What more can we do? Asked Captain Lewis. Why haven't we been able to contain this thing? An edge to his voice she'd never heard before. Billy spoke up. Our containment strategy is absolutely by the book, but in a setting like this, everyone's squeezed in together, communal meals and bathrooms, the ventilation system. What more can we do? The captain broke in. What else? We're doing everything we can, said Callahan, replacing his glasses. Your staff are scanning everyone twice daily. We're running surveillance, hygiene protocols, contact tracing, a buffer zone. He trailed off and Billy took up the list. Perimeter controls, strict donning and doffing regime, she counted on her fingers. But in this setting, social distancing is near impossible. We have to assume human-to-human transmission, but there may be some other vectors too, and we don't know the incubation period. No lab analysis, no antivirals. Speaking of which...
1: Mm, Last year, during Mm. the fires here in Tasmania that went for weeks and weeks we were reading Chloe hooper's The Arsonist. Um, now this year mm. we, we thought we were choosing something that was set well in the future. And uh, we're now during a t- pandemic reading The Trespassers. This is obviously a very timely novel. What prompted you to write it?
2: Well, although it's, the book is sl- set slightly in the future, It was actually inspired by something that happened 200 years earlier, 200 years before the book is set. Uh, And that was a real event, many real events really, but one significant event. A a migrant labour ship called the Ticonderoga set sail from Birmingham uh, in England and headed across to Australia and was full of people who were being imported to do the grunt work uh, of the wall clip and domestic labour because uh, a huge chunk of Victoria had run off to the goldfields. This is in 1852. So it was actually inspired by the past uh, in the beginning. Um, I did initially write one chapter as uh, attempting a historical novel and soon realised that was not my forte Uh, and and then switched into another plane near future, which to me is almost like a parallel version of now. Mm. So it was inspired by, by past events, but also obviously, you know, epidemiologists, scientists have been warning for a long time that what we're now seeing unfolding, you know, events of that nature were coming. So, uh, I, I, I was interested in that through line of history, but how social arrangements and social mores have shifted over the past 200 years uh, in terms of who's coming where on a boat, who's welcome and what they might be bringing with them and who makes the decisions about who belongs.
0: Mm. Speaking of which, um, there's obviously a lot of research when it inv- was involved in writing the novel. Um, what sort of research did you find yourself doing to write this and, and were there any findings that especially stuck with you
2: well, there, there were lots of things to research um you, you know I had to I had to get out maps and figure out how long the ship would take to get from point A to point B what what route it would take where the equator was um, in the story and uh, I try to avoid too much technical stuff in my research because I I find if it makes it into the work to to a high degree, it it becomes Mm. distracting. But so I I had to, I'd sailed across from New Zealand to Australia myself. That's how I migrated here. So that was a form of research, but it was a casting back into my memory to conjure back up the sensations of that journey, the sounds, the smells, the vision, uh, and uh I was horribly seasick when i when I did that crossing, so that 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 calling on that visceral physical memory of that crossing was a form of research, but that was that was dipping into memory uh i guess embodied memory um, and then of course, I had to research the bug itself, the novel virus as it's as it's called, and how that might uh, unfold and what were the protocols for trying to contain a horrendously deadly infectious disease like this, particularly in a small place. And another part of the research was looking at how the psychology of how people respond uh, in a fearful situation like that and and what kinds of um, mechanisms get triggered off or or, or what kinds of behaviours tend to come to the fore when people are frightened of something invisible, but also frightened of each mm. other.
0: Okay. And did you? you know, obviously, there's sort of two obligations here. There's an obligation to to the facts, to the science, to history, but there's also an obligation to you know the art of it, the form of the novel, making it a page turner, as you said. And mm. were there any mm. liberties you had to take with? the facts in order to make it work?
2: Um, Well, I I based a lot of the research I did around containment protocols on responses to the Ebola virus. Um, But, of course, you know, like I'm not a a biochemist or or an epidemiologist, so I had to leave where I wasn't sure. I would leave enough information so that it wasn't blatantly wrong um, but that people could follow the story. I've, I've since made friends with an epidemiologist, a lovely man, and he's read the book. And either he's too polite to tell me there's there's glaring mistakes in there, or he's <laughs> he's a very polite man. So that's or he's he's um found it to be you know sound sound enough. Um, in terms of uh, sorry, the question was, did I take liberties with the truth? Oh, absolutely. I think fiction is an act of taking liberties mm. with the truth. Uh, I I didn't want to. The story was always foremost for me. The research was important and I love research a little bit too much sometimes. I have yep. to step away from it. No, the feeling. But yeah. It's too much fun. It's too much fun, but not very productive always. Um, so I I I kept the characters. The characters were in my mind the whole time and They also kind of manifested physically for me. As I was writing them, I would slip into their consciousness, slip into their body. So I did let the characters in the story lead the way, rather than trying to feel constrained by uh, a slavish devotion to to the facts. Um, I did have to do lots of calculations about how many people had died, at which point, (laughs) where, and (laughs) cross checking that. Math, maths is not a talent of mine so that was probably one of the trickiest bits going back and checking who was dead who was alive who was sick how many beds um yeah
1: on, on the story you've divided it between the three protagonists Cleary who's a young boy Tom the school teacher and Billy the nurse why did you choose these three what are they doing for your novel?
2: I think both, uh, all three of those characters, I guess, particularly Billy, the nurse, uh, and Tom, the teacher, are connecting characters and that they have to play a role whereby they connect with other people across the ship. Uh, Tom's in charge of the children, of, of schooling them, as was the case. Back in- Conderoga. there was a teacher on board so he's like a conduit between the children and the parents and and filtering some of the frightening information that's coming through uh, so he he and Cleary is deaf I should mention so so Tom uh Tom's interactions with Cleary have an have an added charge for that reason. He needs to communicate what's happening to the whole class, but to make sure that Cleary can also um, pick up on what he's saying. Um, Billy, again, she's a connecting character, although unwillingly. Uh, She's also a singer. So uh, initially she she is um, persuaded into singing in the bar in the ship by a friend she makes called Robbie. And so that she's part of bringing t- people together through her voice, and that's a beautiful thing—a grace, a grace that she's been blessed with. But then, when she is effectively press-ganged into caring for the sick passengers, she then becomes a connecting, a, a connecting person who, who enabled. It was useful for me as a writer to have those characters who who connected each other together, um, and I, I like. I chose three perspectives because I like, I like hopping into and out of different voices. I, that's part of how I write. I almost slip inside the consciousness of those people. And I I like almost ventriloquizing.
0: The picture was so wrong, the shock of it so sharp that at first Cleary did not recognize the vital detail. Blackbeard was holding something in one hand the shaft of a metal crowbar, black and heavy, the end hooked like a claw. He clasped the weapon aloft in a loose grip, pointing behind him, enacting the charade in plain sight. As if it was an innocent object, something he waved around to illustrate a point or indicate a direction. Nobody paying the slightest attention, except for one small child. One swing of the man's arm and his ma would fall to the deck, bleeding and broken. Still talking, the weapon held high, Blackbeard looked straight at Cleary for a long moment, then turned back to his mother's upturned face. Each each character has their own voice and Tom even has his own narrative perspective. He's in first rather than third. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how your writing changed with each character?
2: yeah i think the voice the voice changed obviously in the edit you kind of go through and you just check that the voice is consistent for each person and you haven't let that the the voices bleed over uh too much um but tom tom's in the first person uh the other two are in in close um third person and uh, something a bit perverse in me um Made me do that because I like the slight asymmetry of having one direct voice speaking to the reader, and then two other voices where you're actually third person. I think you can get pretty close with that in a way, and and so you're you slipping into that consciousness in in a different way. Uh, but I, I wrote I wrote it in scenes, so it's rotating kind of scenes um, between each viewpoint, and. I'd usually try to stick with one one viewpoint on, on the day that I was writing because otherwise it it got a little bit that, that jumping in and out of consciousness could get a little bit um, confusing. It's better to spend, for me, a little bit more time inside the person before, mm. you know, then the sun goes down, the sun comes up and you move on to the next person. This
1: is sort of a thriller, we've said at the in the first questions, um, with a sort of a bad guy with his black beard, as seen through Cleary's eyes, but in the end, the bad guy is actually disaster capitalism. That's that's our take. But...
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was a bit of a leap from Blackbeard to the entire uh, structural backbone of our uh, our uh, society this- and economy. <laughs> yeah,
1: for you to make. <laughs>
2: Well, I guess there's, uh, uh, even before the current situation occurred with, with the coronavirus sweeping the world, I, I, I would say when chatting about this book, mm-hmm. there's nothing in here that hasn't already happened. So although it's speculative and that it's in, slightly in the future, I also think it's highly plausible and that was important for me I want to keep an element of strangeness and also an element of familiarity so that it it creates a kind of dissonance in the reader and a kind of frisson that I hope makes the book uh, resonate more strongly with them on an emotional and, and mental level, cognitive level. And with the Blackbeard, I guess he's in a way, partly allegorical, although he does unravel a bit towards the end and we start to see him as more of a human being. But, yeah, there are elements of allegory in this novel as well and, and Blackbeard is, you know, as associations of a pirate. We're seeing this through Cleary's, Cleary's eyes. Um, um, and, yeah, the bad guy, uh, the da- idea of um, Blackbeard in folk tale. But as for disaster capitalism, I mean, we're seeing – the book's also about work and about how work has changed over the past decade so rapidly. And we see these private companies leaping in uh, to take up incredibly lucrative contracts doing work that effectively manages segments of the human population as if they were cattle, nearly, uh, or, or, or lower down the pecking order. So I was interested in exploring that, how how that shift towards perhaps outsourcing of essential government uh, services uh, it kind of enables the kinds of abuses that we we see occurring in our prison system, mm. um, obviously in our migration uh, system. So I was interested in how that's playing out and how it connects on a global scale. That's almost its own kind of virus that is that is spread um, slowly and stealthily across the world over the past um, couple of decades. These these companies just making incredible megabucks by doing the dirty work of governments so governments can hold it at arm's length mm. and not be accountable for what they perpetrate. But, I mean, it's,
0: it's very much in the book. That sounds you know, a bit heavy. It's a, <laughs> it's a plausible story, but it's also a very plausible world. Um, one last question. Mm. Uh, the, the philosopher Iris Murdoch talked about a kind of moral-looking um, a gaze that tries to overcome its own delusions and selfishness and really see the world clearly for what it is. Um, what, what were you trying to see really clearly here? What were you trying to look at as, as, um, with as little distortion as possible?
2: Well, I think the character of Cleary was, for me, the most, uh, offered the most lucid moral gaze, in a way. Uh, he is an innocent, but he has a, a, a deep-seated understanding of, uh, maybe not right and wrong, but yeah, I guess maybe, maybe right and wrong. He's just surviving. He's trying to survive. So so allowing readers to take on Cleary's gaze, uh, for me, was a way of showing them what's happening in this world, what the adults mm-hmm. are doing, what's unfolding in front of this little boy and to see it through his eyes and then perhaps to reflect on it from a child's point of view, where ch- children don't tend to perpetrate evil um, in general. Uh, ch- children, um, I mean, I've got one myself. He's gorgeous. He can be a little horror, but <laughs> they don't, uh, they have a different uh, moral order than, than adults. So uh, having having him as, uh, I guess, the, the anchor point of, of the book, Allowed me to explore love and kindness, compassion uh, uh, the uh, the loyalty and and caring that can mm-hmm. arise out of situations of fear and horror and and for me, that's a really important part of the book and i I, I do want to mention it because it does sort of sound like everything in the book goes bad, but I also think it's about what do we do when things go bad, how do we behave towards each other? Um and I, I'm seeing that now in in the in the fear that's circulating on the on the online.
0: Yeah,
2: you know, people turning on each other. I mean they do that anyway on Twitter. It's a bin file it face it. But, 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 you know, attacking, you know, attacking each other over toilet paper. And I don't mean attacking each other in the supermarket over toilet paper. I mean online, you know, using scapegoating each other and, 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 and that sort of attack as defense, um, mentality. Um, what, I, in the, in the book, I called them howlers, people who are just going online, like kind of, um, ranting rage and, and anger. And so I want to contrast that. Also, with Cleary's viewpoint, which is, it is fairly clear-eyed, even though he doesn't really know exactly what's going on. Um, So I've spiralled off into some confusing kind of sidetrack here, but I hope I I partially answered the um, question.
0: He's not a a kind of implausible saintly figure. He's very much a child, but he he embodies, you know, loyalty and love Mm. and... um, His intentions are good and he's not really out to use anyone else for his own kind of fairly nasty gain.
2: Um, You know, yeah. Although although he is dependent, I mean, but his dependency and he he needs protection. And I think that's Mm. something that all of us, that's true for all of us, Mm -hmm. no matter how old we are and how grown up we are, that need for protection, that, that need to be safe that need to feel connected to other people and that vulnerability, um, even though we may not always be behaving perfectly, we Mm. we still need that and and so does this um, little boy.
0: Really nicely, just the way Billy, for all her caution and distance and, you know, she's pretty jaded, she's there for him and she feels that love. I think we can Mm. call it love. It's a kind of love very intensely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it does become love and I I think that's my favorite point of connection in the book is the connection between those two characters, those two people. It it helped that I had a child, you know, while I was writing this book or in the early stages of writing the book. Well it didn't help in getting the book written more quickly, but I, I think it did help <laughs> it, it did help me to slip inside both of those characters and both see the the, the world from the mm. position of a, of a of a small person and um and somebody coming to terms with um uh, loving a child you know that they they in her case did not expect mm. to well, to works. um come um, into her life and
0: with that i think that is a really nice note to wrap it up on um. yeah thank you mick
1: that's been really helpful, and I think that the book club oh, members have thank got you. real insight from you <laughs> sharing the stories behind
2: this. Thank you. Oh, thank you, and I, I really, I want to thank you guys for the opportunity to, to speak to the readers yeah. through this audio uh, thingamajig <laughs> channel after they've so generously also read the book um so yeah i want to say thank you to you and to them and everybody stay safe and hang in there